as we started to get further and further out, you just the sense of um, the safety nets have all gone all of a sudden. You know, the thing that was appealing at first was now um, something that was potentially dangerous, which was that it was a very quiet day out on the water. It was a very quiet day on the beach, despite the weather. And um, we were out here on the ocean, um, just us, no phone, no water. What would you do if you found yourself stranded in the water? You're surrounded by darkness. You're physically and mentally exhausted. And you can't get yourself back to shore. And to make matters worse, you have no phone battery. How would anyone be able to find you? I'm Jasmine and you're listening to Lifesavers, the podcast from the RNLI. Today, before we get to the water, we're heading inland to the city of Birmingham. Come and meet Dean, who got the buzz for fitness with his cousin during lockdown. He loves loves physical fitness, like keeping fit. He's always very obsessive with like when he when he gets into something new, he, he uh he's always practicing a lot. So recently it's been golf. He's gotten into golf and he's like bought a set of clubs and got golf club memberships and all this stuff and he's trying to get me into it as well. He's actually moved to Manchester relatively recently, so it's been a shame because he used to live just down the road from me and like we used to especially during lockdown, you know, um when you were allowed like to be in bubbles and stuff like that, we we were like working out together or like going for a run together and things like that. It's, you know, helps with your sanity. Being active has always been something Dean and his cousin have enjoyed doing together, and teaming up to try out something new and adventurous. So when Dean heard about a kayaking trip in Scotland, his ears immediately pricked up. I was actually doing a medical trial, a paid medical trial, and uh, I was chatting to a guy. He told me about the trip uh, along from Fort William to Inverness. He he said, oh, well, if you're into adventure stuff, have you ever been to Scotland? Have you ever, like, he'd done lots of hiking, and he was really into this sort of stuff. And we we were chatting about it. He was like, it's absolutely beautiful, but you need to make sure that you protect yourself against the midges and all this stuff. And, like, wild camping's legal in Scotland, which I I didn't know. And then I mentioned it to my cousin just off the cuff and he just got the idea in his head and then next thing you know, he was buying boats and he was like, you know, he was just like basically buying the kayaks because I said I'd want to do it and then he made it happen, which is how things generally t- seem to work. Between us. The trip was over 70 miles on the water, starting from Fort William on the west of Loch Linney and finishing in Inverness on the northeast coast of Scotland. They'd be camping over the space of four nights and kayaking every day through Scotland's beautiful freshwater locks. Dean's a physically fit guy, but had he had any experience on the water like this before? No kayaking, no. Um, being from Birmingham, you are a little bit ignorant to the water in general. Just Stetford swimming baths and uh, you know things like that. And like the, the occasional pedal boat at Cannon Hill Park, um, you know. Not a lot of exposure to water, so the boats were new. The two cousins bought some kayaks and took them out for the first time on Birmingham canals. What was that like? Uh, unstable getting into the boat. I think I think it's getting used to all the little things, you know, like <laughs> probably not as clean water as a lot of the ocean <laughs> being the Birmingham canal. Um, but it was great. Um, took a lot of getting used to because it requires a, a specific kind of like consistent coordination and. The boats are really wobbly as well, you know, on top of the uh, 
the water. But like I said, I've I not really had much experience. I've done a little bit of kayaking when I lived in Vietnam, but not not so like the whole getting into the boat thing is always a little bit nerve wracking. But um, and then I think your your intuition just tends to take over pretty quickly, and, and it became fun too. The kayaking trip would take them through many different bodies of water, from locks to freshwater canals, and the conditions can be just as unpredictable here as the open sea. As born and bred city boys, Dean and his cousin hadn't experienced being out on the water like this before, and thought they should get some practice in by taking their kayaks to the beach. The idea that uh, we hadn't taken the boats on any sort of open moving water yet, like the canal water is moving in Birmingham, but not not very dramatically. Um, So we thought, you know, get exposed to a few waves and uh, uh, the open water and get a sense of that. That week, in the middle of June, Dean and his cousin travelled to a small town west of Rill in North Wales. So we actually went to a campsite. Um, close to Rill and uh, we went to a pebble beach that was west of Rill and there was uh, yeah it was it was the water and everything's really beautiful and uh, it wasn't like an an overly busy beach so it seemed like a really good place to to go and get some experience. It was a very clear hot sunny day and we just we pitched our tent at the campsite and we took our inflatable kayaks and I think we got to the water at about between 2 and 3 p.m. in the afternoon so it was very hot and sunny and yeah uh, clear skies could see right into the distance everything seemed really calm and uh, you know innocuous just uh, it looked great so on a very nice clear day uh, in the most unthreatening looking beach in the world it was like uh, oh there's the wind farms they don't look that far out so we thought on the day we'll decide to travel to the wind farm and travel back what could you know what could go wrong it looks like a straight run it looks very close uh, Google Maps is saying I think there were like three miles out or something like that you know and you, you think in your head oh well I can run three miles in a relatively at a relatively fast pace like you know how how long could it take on a boat, like with the with the wind slightly behind you? You know, if if the the ocean were solid, I could run to the wind farms in like ten minutes. That's what it looked like initially. So uh, yeah, the plan was get to the wind farm and paddle back, like uh, get a feel for the water, challenge our fitness a little bit, a um, little bit of a competition between each of us to to do that. So yeah, that was the plan. With their eyes set on the wind farms, Dean and his cousin started making their way out onto the water. They weren't planning to be out for long. After all, the wind farms were only three miles away and the conditions looked very calm. So they packed light for their journey. Uh, this is goes to show sort of how ill-prepared definitely I was. Um, I had a dead mobile phone. I had uh, no water. Uh, I'd managed to pack sun cream. We did. We did actually uh, pack our life jackets um, and just the clothes on our back. No other sort of safety equipment, nothing like that. Just just the paddles and the boat, and uh, yeah, that was it. They began to get a feel for how different the open sea was compared to the canals of the city, 
and took it in their stride. It felt better. It was more exciting, obviously, because there's there's movement. And even when you start getting out just a, a little distance, like, uh, you know, a, a hundred metres or a couple of hundred metres, the sounds and everything a lot more tranquil, you know, the, the sounds of the city or, you know, the coast just like evaporate away and you're left with just the, the sounds of the ocean and it's it is exciting and um very very tran- tranquil you know making their way out onto the water dean and his cousin put their heads down and started paddling to get to their goal of the wind farms they managed to get away from the shoreline easily in their kayaks But soon, for some reason, they noticed the distance between them and the wind farms wasn't getting any smaller. And uh, they just wouldn't, you know, it took so long for them to get closer. And then you always think you're closer than you are. But it took a long time, I think. And we had the we had all the the conditions with us, I think, at that that point. We got a sense of the coast because that that part of. Uh, the coast is like a curve and uh, you sort of reference how far you're going by by the edges and uh, we sort of cleared the furthest part of the coast that we could see in getting to the wind farm and it seemed like by quite a distance as well but all the reference points are just so confusing it was one of the things that really struck me when we got out there you know so you can't trust your senses to, to give you any indications to how far you've gone or how far you've come or you know, or how far away something is or where you are in relation to something else. So it it took a long time. Dean and his cousin had gone past the furthest point of the coast that they could see from land. But now their sense of distance and location was completely distorted. That's what happens when you get offshore. I think the way we explain with offshore is, is basically it's been out of sight of land. So either somebody either something that's in the sea you're trying to look for all from the shore with a naked eye you, you lose if it's something bit like a boat you, you you will lose sight of it you'd start losing them over her, over the horizon so anything that's that you can't physically see that's paul he's a deputy coxswain at real lifeboat station having been on the crew for almost 40 years he knows this coastline extremely well and why offshore conditions were keeping Dean and his cousin from making any progress while they were paddling in the water. The land has a big effect on the weather. The wind could be fairly light, and as soon as you go a couple of miles offshore, or away from the shore, the wind would increase. The area that they'd gone to was off was the Real Flats Wind Farm, which is off Colwyn Bay, sort of Roast-on-Sea, Colwyn Bay area. That's its closest point of land. I think they'd gone from the beach at... Um, along the coast by Penzarn area, Abergelly. It was a lovely hot sunny day with a light, probably a fresh offshore breeze. So where they where they started from, and they're in the kayaks, it would have been great. It would have been flat calm. The the wind strength would be stronger than what it would have been closer inshore. So where they were going out with the wind, they were, they were heading towards the wind farm. So the wind would have been behind them. You wouldn't have realised until they'd have. Either, either like even just turn around in the kayak once you're a couple of mile out, thinking, hmm, these wind towers aren't getting any closer, but we're, but the land's getting smaller, and and you could probably feel that the wind was increasing. With that offshore wind increasing, 
Dean and his cousin couldn't paddle any further. But not only were the conditions stopping them from getting further out to sea, the wind was now drifting them further and further away from one another too. For me personally, my cousin wasn't bothered, but for me personally, the fear started setting in just when I realised how far away these wind farms were. And I was like, and he was well ahead of me then, and I didn't have a phone. I, I could shout at him and he couldn't hear me. And I started to think, oh God, we could be in trouble here. This is absolutely miles out, it feels. And uh, and there's, no, there's nothing or no one to turn to, to like get a hold of each other or anything like that. Dean and his cousin had already been out on the water for hours. So nightfall and the cold were starting to creep in. They only had one phone between them, but they were no longer together on the water. The safety nets have all gone all of a sudden. You know, the thing that was appealing at first was now um, something that was potentially dangerous, which was that it was a very quiet day out on the water. It was a very quiet day on the beach, despite the weather. And um, we were out here on the ocean, um, just us, no phone, no water. And like I said, my cousin had got so far ahead of me and I've got, I've got good eyesight, I think, or good long distance eyesight. And uh, he'd got so far ahead of me, I, I literally couldn't see him. I could just about make out the suggestion of his life jacket, sort of in the distance. I don't know. And I started to think, right, we need to just get together and get back. One of the things that really made me feel uh, quite scared was going over these almost dead spots of the water. And there'd be, so there'd be the waves generally, but you go over these patches of water where it was completely still and it almost looked like an oil slick. It had a different feel to the rest of the water. And I was just like, what is that? Is that like a riptide? Is that, you know, I, I just realized I was completely ignorant to everything, you know, that the, the changes of, of the water and everything like that. Like, and then all of a sudden you'd be out of that and there'd be waves again. Dean and his cousin managed to get close enough to each other again. And with some difficulty, they turned around in their kayaks to head back to the beach. But though the offshore wind was strong enough to stop them reaching the wind farms, it was strong enough to stop them being able to get back to shore too. We turned around and we used the, um, the ferris wheel on the coast as a reference point and we were, we were really pushing to get back as hard as we possibly could. We felt like we were moving and we were putting everything into it and we were both taking the situation obviously very seriously at this point because it was getting dark. So um, we were pushing as hard as we possibly could and it just seemed like we were revisiting the same bits of the ocean and even our ability to stay um, parallel to each other was compromised you know like i said i uh, mentioned those dead spots earlier we'd go across the same bit and we'd feel well like we might see the same thing floating on the top of the it was it was almost nightmarish like uh some sort of weird surreal realm where these things were just repeating and you know like a nightmare where you can't get close to the thing that's in the corner or you know it, that's what it felt like it felt like none of it was under our control anymore you know it didn't matter how hard we tried, it didn't matter how much effort we put in, it didn't matter how much what we were doing seemed to make sense that it would help, it just didn't. Night had fully set in, and Dean and his cousin were now surrounded by darkness. They were no closer to shore, and to make matters worse, Dean's cousin's phone, the only working phone between them, had less than 10% battery 
and just one bar of signal. It became, I think, uh, pretty obvious to us that uh, if we didn't take the opportunity now or, or relatively soon, that we might not be able to get contact with people, you know, and that could be potentially disastrous. We, we had to begin accepting that that was the situation. It was getting really, really dark and my cousin's shoulder had hurt like a because from the like repetitive strain basically we, we were going as hard as we could constantly and uh when it became clear that like he couldn't really paddle anymore and uh you know we were both tired um it, it was the only option really to call 999 the cousins called for help and asked for the coast guard who was able to quickly get the boy's location and pass it to the volunteers at Rill RNLI. The Coast Guard told the cousins it was vital to preserve their phone battery. In the complete darkness, they would have to depend on that phone to use as a light, if the lifeboat crew were going to have any chance of spotting them in the water. Meanwhile, on land, crew member Paul was being paged to the emergency. It was a Tuesday, and Tuesdays are our crew training night. So that particular evening, I think we'd had the inshore lifeboat out for a, a training session. And after our crew training, we have we go to the local pub, which who look after us nicely and provide us with a nice tray of butties. And just thinking about going home when the pages went off, roughly about half, half past ten. There was no time to lose, and the real RNLI crew launched both of their lifeboats, including the inshore lifeboat that they had been training with that evening. This lifeboat is a small rib that can get close to shorelines and manoeuvre in shallow areas of the water. They also launched their all-weather lifeboat, which is bigger and more capable to power out into the open sea if Dean and his cousin were being blown further out to the wind farms. Knowing the boys' coordinates and that they had such little phone battery left, what was going through the crew's mind? So the first thing is is the amount of time that they've been out. We, we weren't sure what time they'd actually left the shore. So bearing in mind it was quite late at night, the, the main thing there was if they'd been out all day was more more of the, of how the, the effect of the heat, the sun, water, were they, de- were they hydrated enough or, de- or dehydrated and then probably at that time of night, were they uh, as tiredness was setting in? Was are they going to start getting cold? You know, we all know what it's like if you've been in the sun all day, and probably maybe had too much sun. And as the as your evening wears on, if you've not drunk enough, you all of a sudden you you can feel really cold. The lifeboat crew had the coordinates from where Dean and his cousin had called the coast guard, but the offshore wind was quickly moving them around on the water there was also a very real chance that their phone battery would have died. How could the crew plan to search for them in the complete darkness? And the thoughts were that we could go about, we could, with the, with the all-weather boat, we could go halfway out between the shore and the wind farm to, and, and to a line that was from the wind farm to where they'd, where they'd actually set off from the beach. And then once there we could, with, with the searchlights, we could see if we could see them, but it was also decided straight away that once we would got into that area that we could use the parachute flares. The ALB has been given search instructions. They'll pass on when we get there. 
conserve the battery powered in their phones to light up once we're in the area. When right. we get into the area, we just start being verbal and hopefully they hear us and guide us on. It was it was a worry that the that the phone was going to last. Even just the screen of a mobile phone is bright enough to be seen for for some distance, and then just looking so everyone on deck looking out just in all the different directions to see if we could see anything. We worked a, a line out from the beach from where they they they'd left in the morning to the area of the wind farm that they said they'd been to well once we got to that that line that's where we stopped and that's where when we when we used the flares you're about 20 30 seconds of the flare burning the main thing what we were looking for at that point was while the flare was 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 lit for those those twenty odd seconds, that we could, that yes, we were looking to see if we could actually see them, but also because we knew they had a mobile phone, we were then looking to to see if we could see the phone. But the other thing to remember is, of course, they could see us. Elliot, Coast Guard, roll lifeboat, one white parachute flare fired and burning brightly over. We saw the flare, so the flare was right ahead of us, um, like directly ahead of us. Uh, the flare was fired. Now it's moving too fast, up. On came the torch, on came the, the phone. Extremely relieved and happy. At that point, you know that you're pretty sure you're going to be all right. You know the flare was uh, was a welcome sight. Oh, it's great! It's really, it was really, really. <laughs> all of a sudden, there's this little white light that's shining towards you, and they were, I don't think all they were, they were waving it, so it gave the impression that there was a flashing light. But it was obvious that it was the the little flash of a phone. Yeah, it was very reassuring. It's like great. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was really. Yeah, we're really pleased that, that we'd, we'd seen him straight away. Obviously at this point, as happy as I am to be getting off, uh, also I'm a little bit embarrassed about the situation that we got ourselves into. Cold, because we were cold and wet, it, it, was, it was dark, so everything had really cooled down. And um, it was just a real mix of emotions and emotional exhaustion at the same time. Is the idea that like two men in their thirties could uh, be so ignorant to the dangers that you know were around what we were deciding to do? Um, there are things on television, but you just think, oh, it's never going to be me. It's, you know, it's, this is this is perfectly fine. Nothing could go wrong here, and we were very wrong about that. There's no need to be embarrassed. There's just it's a feel. Just remember that they've they've done the right thing by calling for help. We're there. We've. We're not. We're not judging anybody. Basically, it's what we're there to do to to to, to help people for whatever the assistance they need. It's. It happens to anyone at some point, isn't it? They, they. If they're at sea, it can be the most experienced person, and they still need to be helped. Even lifeboat crews are rescued by lifeboats at some point in their life. 
Dean and his cousin gave themselves the best possible chance to get to safety by dialing 999 and asking for the Coast Guard. And, as Paul explains, something else saved their lives that night too. They were wearing life jackets, well, pers- PFDs, personal flotation devices, so they, they, were, they had that side of things covered. The life jacket, even out of the water, wearing it, or the PFDs that they were wearing, have got thermal properties, so if, if there would have been any they're starting to get cold, the life jacket is helping them keep warm. Wearing the life jacket all the time is definitely a, the most, one of the most important things to do. You feel really grateful. Like I said, we, we came, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we had a bit of a brush with death uh, with our situation in North Wales. So um, it definitely like, reinvigorated my perspective on, on things. It's just so easy to walk into certain situations that are very dangerous. And we were helped by kind people that, that uh, you know, that volunteer to do this. They're not even paid and uh, do it in their spare time or not spare time. And uh, it makes you feel, uh, it, even that incident being one that you would ideally avoid was one that uh, it made me feel good about things, you know. You come across people in life, uh, whether it's a teacher or uh, you know a nurse, sometimes in a hospital and stuff. And there's lots of people that are just doing jobs because it's their job, and then there's people who are doing things because they have the right makeup to do these things. And you definitely got that feel with those guys that they were out there. They understood that people feel embarrassed. They understood that you know how people get into these situations, especially people who don't live around water. That was Dean's first trip out on the open water. But did the experience of being rescued mean it would be his last? Did they make the kayaking trip? <laughs> yeah, we did. We did make the kayaking trip um, with a lot more uh, uh, know-how of, of uh, how to be going along. We actually got a lot of tips off the RNLI people. Don't take Loch Ness lightly. You know, there's a very busy RNLI on Loch Ness and, uh, you know, stay, stick to the sides and things like that. If anything, it's made me like the water a lot more and, uh, and, and want to spend more time on it, but just a little bit more responsibly. It was a very uh, a good situation to, to realise just how fragile you are and how fragile life is to an extent and, uh, and that there's a lot of forces going on that are beyond our control. And it makes you feel very small when there's a busy coast, a busy holiday coast, and it, but you are totally alone, you know. Um, I definitely feel that, um, that since that incident and with things in between, I've got a lot more of a zest for life and uh, just, I'm just happy to be alive. It's, it's uh, you know, I'm grateful for it. It's a, it's a gift, isn't it? Whether you live by the water or not, whether you use the water often or not, Dean's story could have happened, and does happen, to anyone. No matter how confident you are in the water, conditions can be unpredictable, even if you're not by the coast. So make sure you always check the local information of where you're going. Find out the tide times, and always feel free to speak to local RNLI crews and lifeguards who know the area incredibly well. Find out all the advice you need on how to stay safe on the water, especially while kayaking or canoeing, in the link in the episode notes. Thank you so much to Dean and Paul from Real Lifeboat Station on sharing this experience with us. I'm Jasmine, and Lifesavers is presented and produced by me and Adventurous Audio Limited. Adventurous Audio Limited